This is episode 46 of the Higher Christian Life broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When it comes to our failure to experience the higher Christian life, or maybe we've tasted of it in the past but failed to maintain it, the culprit is always sin that grieves the Holy Spirit. But for most believers, this is not the big sin, the big, dark, horrible sin we never talk about, that no one ever talks about, but it's the sins we commit over and over again without victory. Hebrews 12 calls this sin the one that so easily ensnares us, and the Greek word means to surround or encompass or to easily beset. Oh, that's what those sins are, besetting sins. And if you look up the word besetting sins in a dictionary, you will find that these are the sins we continually struggle with and have a weakness for, one we commit over and over and over again without relief or victory. Does that sound familiar? I thought so. Maybe you have a few besetting sins in your own life. I mean, most believers do. But has God provided for us victory over our besetting sins that so easily ensnare and compass and surround us? Well, the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. In fact, the victory over these sins is already secured for you. All you have to do is receive it, like salvation, by faith, like the higher Christian life by faith. Are you ready to find out more? If so, join us as we learn how to embrace the higher Christian life and get freedom from these besetting sins that hold us back. Let's jump right in, shall we? You know, we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about, uh, the early church and what they were like. Um, as I said, we're going to be taking some time going through the book of Acts, and we've kind of hit around the edges before we started on that because the picture of the higher Christian life or what the Christian life should be like is found in the book of Acts. We don't know. You know, the guys became Christians pretty much when the Holy Spirit indwelt them in Acts chapter 2, and the only example we have of how Christians are supposed to function is found in the book of Acts or we can pull some principles out of Paul's letters. We can look at each other, and that's not the standard. We can look at church history, that's not the standard. The standard, of course, is what we find in the book of Acts of how these men like you and I, who had far less than we have, they had far less money, far less freedom, they didn't have the Bibles that we have, or the Christian materials that we have, or discipleship studies, or the history of church, of the church, they didn't have any of that, but what they did have was the Holy Spirit they leaned on probably greater than we do. The same Holy Spirit that dealt with them, same Holy Spirit that deals with us. Same lifestyle or or government that they were under as kind of the government we're under now, only that one was infinitely worse. They, uh, They didn't have email, they didn't have television, they didn't have cable, they didn't have MP3s, they didn't have Christian movies, they didn't have anything, and yet, We read towards the end of the book of Acts, two-thirds of the book of Acts, that the challenge made against them was these men turned the world upside down. And so based on our vantage point today, we look at the life of the Christians in the book of Acts, and we go, based on where we're at, that's a higher Christian life. That's something we need to aspire to. And there was some things that we're going to talk about next week that in the first six chapters of the book of Acts, they kind of made them the men they were. Number one, there was complete unity. 
They really lived what Jesus said in John 17, that they be one as I am one, I with the Father, the Father in me, so they be one in each other. We find that through the phrase, one accord, having all things together. They had boldness, something that our culture has tried to beat out of men, especially beat out of the, um, the church today, that men are not supposed to be bold. Men are supposed to be sensitive and and kind of the John Wayne mode of a man is no longer popular today. Instead, it's the guy that just feels deeply. And Okay, not that they're mutually exclusive, but back then the church was bold. And why wouldn't they be? They've been saved and they're going and they're sharing all that. And God, through ordinary people, God affirmed what they were doing with this incredible amount of miracles that took place. And again, we're just looking at the first five or six chapters of the book of Acts, and we will delve into that in the weeks to come. But one thing I do want you to know is one of the things the early church believed was that when God made a promise to them that he kept the promise, that he kept his word and they could take it at face value. If he said, this is what I will do, they believed that is what he will do. And so we looked a couple weeks ago at some of the passages, the truths that they held on to. If you remember the first John 2 passage, which told them not to love the world or the things in the world because all these trappings of the world do nothing but pull you aside. They do nothing but hinder your walk with me. You cannot have the world as your God and me as your God. You can't have no idols before me. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone does love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You won't have that altruistic, all-giving, all-compassionate love if your love is divided by loving things. For all that is in the world, and he lays down here again, we've talked about this, the, the inward part, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world, the cosmos, the fallen world system. And that world is passing away, so we should devote our lives to things that matter. The lust also, but he who does the will of God we spent some time talking about the five wills of God, abides, rests, stays connected with, makes his home, dwells with God forever. Then we closed last week. If you remember, we talked about uh, it's time. It's time for us to take serious our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we closed with Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. How do we go about getting serious about our walk with Christ? How do we move from a six to a 10 spiritually, and then next week be a new 10 and a new 10 and a new 10. How do, we, how do we testify in church? I am closer to the Lord than I have ever been in my life. And by the way, that testimony is contagious. People want to hang around people that are living what they claim to believe. How do we go about doing that? And after chapter 11 of Hebrews' roll call of faith, we end up with chapter 12, first two verses. And here's what he says. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, you're not doing this alone. Let us, our action, lay aside every weight, something we do, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance, not running and getting tired and quitting, the race that Jesus has set before us, that God in his sovereignty has set before us, not looking at each other, but looking at Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Key part of this verse is verse, or this section is verse one. Watch this. It's, Therefore, since we also are surrounded by so great a count of witnesses, let us, we're getting ready to participate in the Lord's Supper, let us lay aside, jettison, we talked about what these words meant last week, every weight. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Every weight, everything that hinders us from thriving with God, everything. And the sin which so easily, what? Ensnares us. Strange word. Ensnares us. I mean, what does that mean, to ensnare us? It means to surround us, to encompass us like a net. And in this world, it means easily besetting. Oh, but that, that makes more sense now. Ensnare, surround, encompass, trap like a net. Okay, but I understand besetting. I understand what that means because I've heard the phrase besetting sins. Haven't you? We have sins and then we have besetting sins. So you can get a dictionary out, you can get a theological dictionary, you can look it up on the internet. What is a besetting sin? What is a sin that so easily ensnares us? What is a sin that surrounds us, encompasses us, traps us like a net that we can't ever seem to get out of? And the definition is a besetting sin is a sin that we continually struggle with and we have a weakness for. I'm prone to this. Seems like when things go bad, I default to this. If my, if my sin, you know, if something bad happens to me and I get depressed and I decide that I want to get out of my depression by go hanging out at a bar for a while, and I've always done that my whole life, and I try not to, but I do, and I try not, whatever it is, it becomes a besetting sin. And a besetting sin is something that we have a natural bent towards. My besetting sin is probably different than Tammy's besetting sin, but nevertheless, we have them. It's the sins we always fall prey to that we always are trapped by. It's a sin that we commit over and over and over again, and it seems like we can never get victory over. Yes, I'm, I got victory over this and victory over this and victory over this, but I just can't shake this one. Why not? I just, I just can't. It's, it's there. It's in my DNA. I always default to it. I don't know what to do. It seems like God has trapped me here. Therefore, no matter how hard I try, I, I can get to seven spiritually. And then that besetting sin comes in, that decision that I make, the compromise that I make. And it's the same one over and over again. And I just can't get victory over it. I try. I struggle. I work real hard. But nevertheless, it doesn't work. The bottom line is this, if you and I are not growing spiritually, if we're not tens or tomorrow and 11 or something of that nature, if we're not growing in our faith, if we're plateaued somewhere, maybe better than we were, but not where we have been at one time or where we should be, if you'll really research the reason why, it's always sin of some sort a decision that we make, this is more important than you, God. I love this person more than I love you, God. I know your word says this, but I need to do this anyway. And those sins we commit over and over and over again until we basically just give up. It's the besetting sins that absolutely overwhelms us. And it doesn't have to be anything great. 
It could be, it could be whatever your flesh requires you to do to satisfy something Christ is not filling in your spirit. When all of a sudden I feel depressed or I feel forsaken or I feel attacked or alone or betrayed, rather than bolstering myself in the faith I have in the Lord Jesus Christ, I default back to how I handled that before I knew Christ. I'll go get drunk. I'll go do something I shouldn't do. I'll, I'll lower my moral standards. I want to feel good in the flesh so I feel good about something because I refuse to let this be, I refuse to let the Lord give me victory in this besetting sin, whatever it is. And it goes on for months and it goes on for years. And then we get to a point that we just resigned to it. You know what? It's just who I am. I just, you know, I'm okay being a seven because I, I tried and I failed and I tried and I failed and I keep failing and failing and failing. And every time I fail, I get depressed and it doesn't seem like God is powerful enough or maybe I'm not powerful enough in God or whatever it is. You know, just quit. I'm just going to give in to that. That was my father's life. Before I was saved, I was 10% good and 90% bad. And after I got saved, which by the way, he never was, I was 85% good and God lets me have that 15%. Where do you find that in the Bible? It's not anywhere in there. And that 15% of his, even though he wasn't saved, that he thought he was, it was horrific, just unbelievably horrific. And we kind of live the same way. We kind of plateaued. Many of us, the church is. That's why we're not bold. That's why miracles aren't taking place. That's why, that's why Christians are not in one accord. What do we do? I mean, is there a victory from this? Has God provided victory for besetting sins? And the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. But the thing that you have to do to appropriate that victory in your life is believe God's word. If you don't believe it, it has no power. You must believe God's word. So today, before we take the Lord's Supper, I want you to look at 1 John chapter 1. And I want to begin in verse number 5. And I want to show you truly how simple this is. 1 John 1, beginning in verse number 5. This is the message we have heard from him. This is the message Christ communicated to us and declared to you there is no gray area. There is no 15%, which is okay. That God is light, light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. He is resplendent, glory, purified light. And there's not a shadow of darkness in him at all. Oh, oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I walk in the light. I have fellowship with God who is in the light. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. What are we lying about? that we walk in darkness. Everybody knows you walk in darkness. No, we lie in saying that we have fellowship with the light. Today, I mean, it's really been this way for hundreds of years, we soft pedal the gospel of Jesus Christ because we don't want to make it too difficult to discourage people. But every time you look 
uh, what Jesus said, it's, it's all or nothing. Good tree, bad tree, good fruit, bad fruit. Christian, doesn't have bad fruit. Uh, a non-Christian can't have good fruit. Well, yeah, can't you have a couple apples that are bad? Do they all have to be good? Yes. Dead, alive. I mean, it's, there's not anywhere in between. Hot or cold, no lukewarm. Light or darkness, nothing in the shadow of the gray area. That's the way God is. You don't love the world. James says you don't even become a friend of the world. Because when you become a friend of the world, I'm just a friend. You made an enemy of me. Can't I just have some friends in the world, in the world system? If you do, you're an enemy of mine. All are nothing. But I can't live that way because of these besetting sins. What power do we have to see a victory over besetting sins? If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, to what degree? As he is in the light, that's abiding in him. That's the higher Christian life. That's him working his life through us. We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Toss, all, each, every, in totality, no exception, sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And then this verse. This is the first if-then verse in this passage. If, if, condition. Of course, there's a then. The implied then is the second. If I do this, then God will do this. If I don't fulfill my part of the obligation, God will not fulfill his. So all I have to do is do my part, which is small compared to what I'm asking God to do, what God promises to do with his part. If I confess my sins, if we confess our sins, he, attributes of God, is faithful and just to one, forgive us our sins. What I confess, he forgives. And here's the most overlooked promise in the book of 1 John. And to cleanse us from, note the word here, all, pos, unrighteousness. I know, I know that I, if I confess my sins, Christ will forgive me. I know that, no problem with that. I say I'm sorry, he says forgiven. I say I confess it, he says I'm pardoned. I got that because that's way out there. I won't even know if that's true until I stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. But I, I believe that's true because it makes me feel better and that I'm accepting that part of your word, but the cleansing from all unrighteousness? No. I, I can't. I'm, I'm struggling. And if that was true, then why do I have this besetting sin that always holds me back, that always makes me feel terrible about myself, that always leads to depression or, or resignation? Or, and I don't even want to get involved with church anymore because I feel so dirty because I can't get rid of this single sin or besetting sins that hold me back. One is easy to accept. The other one's a little more difficult, but victory comes when we do accept them. Let me just run this by you. If we confess, same confession you had when you got saved, if I admit, concede, if I openly acknowledge, that doesn't necessarily imply opening and acknowledging in a setting like this. You openly acknowledge to God, God, I am wrong. I have sinned. I have messed up. I confess my sins. 
plural here. Sometimes besetting sins are more than just one. I confess my sin to you, and I can trust you that you are faithful and just to do exactly what you said you would do if I met my part of the bargain. And my part of the transaction is I confess. Same thing when we get saved. You know, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, that's if, then, remember the rest of that? You shall be saved. I do my part, God does his part, and the benefit that I get from God's part is far greater than whatever I do. I give a confession, he gives me eternal life. I confess my sins, he fills me with the Holy Spirit. I give him a broken life worth nothing, and like the song Levi led us in, he makes something beautiful of my life. If I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to forgive me what I confess. I got that, Lord. I don't disagree with that. I believe every part of that. My experience has shown I don't stay awake at night beating myself up because I don't think you've forgiven me of my sins. But I stay awake at night beating myself up because I feel like a spiritual loser because I can't get victory over the sins that I keep doing and I keep asking you to forgive them over and over and over again. And if I were you, I'd get sick and tired of hearing from me. That's a besetting sin. And if I got rid of that besetting sin, it would hold me back, whatever it is. I know my spiritual life would soar. I'd be a 10. Next week, I'd talk about how close I was to Jesus because I'm not burdened by that sin anymore. How do I get victory? He tells us that we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse. The word cleanse here means to purify from the power and guilt of sin, you're free from filth and defilement. He takes us and he cleanses us. Well, does he cleanse us like positionally because of our sins? He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, from God's vantage point, all of what is wrong, all is what is wicked, all that what is impure in your life, everything that is an offense to him, everything that grieves the Holy Spirit, he can wash it clean, wipe it clean, set it aside. You mean if I confess my besetting sin, that he will forgive me of that? Yes. And not only that, but he will purify your life, that that will no longer be a besetting sin to you. You'll be able to approach him free from guilt, free from the power of sin, free, obviously, from the penalty of sin. You'll be able to, to embrace him for who he is. And the only time that besetting sin will enter your life again is if you voluntarily choose to do it because it'll no longer be something that you're naturally prone to. It will be an anathema to you because he has cleansed you from everything about that unrighteousness that drew it to you. So... How do I do that? Well, if I were to survey you, if I started with you, Karen, and I surveyed you, and I said, do you believe this? Well, yeah, I do. Why? Well, because it's in the Bible, and I believe everything in the Bible. Do you think it's true in your life? I don't think so. Why? I don't know. My, the sin's too great. I've tried and failed. doesn't seem to work for me. I just can't get victory over this 
black spot in my life. I, I believe it's maybe okay for other people, but for me, no. No. So I just kind of give into it. And I give into it, and I give into it, and I give into it. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's just pride. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's bitterness. Who knows? I just give into it until all of a sudden I don't care anymore. All of a sudden I'm, I, I'm satisfied just limping along towards the finish line, less than what God wants me to be, never experiencing everything he has for me because I don't have the faith to believe that his word is really true. If we confess, he forgives. Got that. But he also promised, if we confess, to cleanse us from the power of guilt and of sin and defilement in our lives, removing from us all wickedness, impurity, and the things we do wrong that are an offense to him. That is the promise of God to us. The same authority that he has when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I do prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you will be also. It takes the same amount of faith to believe in that as it does this. And to believe one because, well, that's in the sweet by and by, and the other one, no, it's because this guy at work is giving me such a hard time, and I just complain about it all the time, and I just can't stand him. It doesn't mean that one is greater than the other. It just means where we're willing to let our faith reside. So do you believe the promise? Uh, yes. Cognitively, yes. Okay. Well, if so, are you ready to step out and see whether or not it's true? That's where faith comes from. That's where the early church became the early church because they were willing to act on the things that they believed. So I have a proposition for you. Rather than make it... Uh, like a guilt thing where we all feel terrible about that. Let's do something we probably have never done because we feel guilty doing it. Let's put God to the test. That's horrible. We're not supposed to test the Lord. Yeah, there is a couple of places where he tells us to do that. One of them is in Malachi chapter three. As a matter of fact, uh, I shared this with you before that when Jesus was getting ready to send the, the 12 out by themselves and then the 70 out by themselves, he gave them some instructions. Spiritually, what I want you to do is heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, freely give, freely receive. And then the rest of the stuff he talked about, don't take, uh, don't take extra money, don't take extra shoes, don't worry about what you're going to eat or where you're going to go. He spent four verses talking about money and supporting them, and one verse talking about all the things they were going to do, because God knows we're more concerned about us than we are anything else. So the challenge that he gave in Malachi was this. I want you to bring all the tithe into the storehouse. What? And that, uh, why? Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Okay, we're not talking about tithing. But the next sentence says, try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open up for you the window of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that you will not be room enough to receive it. God says the one thing you're struggling with, which most of us struggle with, is enough money to pay our bills and do the things that we want. I'm telling you, if you tithe, if you don't believe it's true, test me on this and prove it. I think the same admonition could apply to this. You think this verse is true? You think God really can heal you of a besetting sin? Do you really think that he can cleanse you from all righteousness? Test him on that. 
testings. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. And the challenge I have for you is join me this week on a test where you surrender whatever sin you know holds you back. Maybe it's a lust that you haven't given up from the past. Maybe it's a bitterness towards God because of things that have come your way. Maybe it's a sexual sin or maybe it's you know, just an attitude like pride or arrogance or, or lust for money or the possessions of the world or whatever it is. Maybe it's just complaining and, and not being fulfilled with what you have and always wanting more, whatever it is. God, your word says that I've recognized it to sin and confess that you'll forgive me. I believe that. But will you also cleanse me from it? Will you also give me victory? Would you also let me walk in a newness of life with it? And Lord, your word says, yes, but I've never experienced it in my life. So right now, I'm going to test you with this. I'm going to confess it. I'm going to yield to you. I'm going to surrender to you. I'm going to ask you to fill me with your spirit and with healing and sanctification and see, as he says in Malachi, if God doesn't pour out a blessing on you, maybe a spiritual blessing on you beyond what you can even imagine. We spent about 15 minutes talking about things that we were thankful for this year. Can you imagine if next week you are more thankful for what he did in the last seven days than you were all of last year? Think he can do that? Absolutely. But test him in this. My God and your God is a big God. Doesn't get offended for our lack of faith. As a matter of fact, the disciples said, you know, increase our faith. Show us how to have more faith. I mean, he honors our honesty. He knows exactly how you feel, exactly what you struggle with and what your doubts are. Confess that to him, yield that to him, and let him change us from the inside out. Let us, let us, let him make us into something we've never been. Now, that's my challenge to you as we take the Lord's Supper. What I'm going to do is pray, and then I'm going to ask a couple guys to help us pass this out. And then while we're passing it out, I would like you, in your heart of hearts, Lord, I, I, I have a besetting sin or besetting sins or sinful attitudes, things I'm entrapped with that ensnare me, that trip me up every single time. And Lord, I'm sick and tired of living that. I'm going to yield it to you. I'm going to give it to you. You said that you would cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That if I confessed it to you, not only forgiving my sins, but in the life I live right now, the life of sanctification, you would cleanse me from that. And Lord, I'm going to believe your word. I'm going to test you in this. I think God would be pleased at your desire to let him be God in your life and not put him in a box and think it's not going to work, maybe for somebody else, but not for you. And let's see what God does. Amen? Will you join me with this? Let me pray. Father, you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And your word is so true here. Your word tells us what to do and what not to do and what promises you provide for us. And the higher Christian life, Lord, is when we had the faith to believe you for what you say and not doubt you or fear you or call you a liar, which is what we're doing. Lord, you said that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you would purify us from that, that you would make us like a newborn babe spiritually in front of you, 
filled with your spirit, having all the power of you living in us to say no to these sins. Because greater is he, you, living in us than anything Satan can throw our way. You've given a shield of faith, which extinguishes every fiery arrow of the enemy trying to fall, make us fall back in the same ways we've always struggled with. You've given us so much that many of us have failed to avail ourselves to. But Lord, we're asking you to show us your word, to show us the truth of your word. And if we meet the if condition, we're going to believe that you will do the then part. And we're going to thank you in advance for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.